It's kind of beyond a feast. It's like taking visual MDMA. Hello and welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to Barbie, question Mm -hmm. mark. (laughs) (laughs) I am one of your hosts, Sarah, and I am joined by my, you know, you're given a very grounded vibe today. My grounded co-host, Robin. Wow. 43 years of work and I'm finally (gasps) coming off as grounded. (laughs) Goals achieved. Thank you, Sarah. That's a nice compliment. Oh, good. How are you doing? What's giving you a fuck yeah? I am doing great. I'm kind of possibly doing better than ever. <gasps> it's a hard thing to say. It's wow, a hard thing to okay. Say. So my fuck yeah, actually, it has to do with my Barbie viewing experience, but not about the Barbie movie. Barbie didn't solve all your problems? Oh my God. As much as Mattel would like us to be <laughs> So I've talked a lot about my mental health stuff and everything. And I don't know if I've mentioned that I, in the past three weeks, while my partner and kids have been out of town, I decided that I was going to wean off of Lexapro. And I decided that because I was like, you know what? I'm a lot more regulated and Lexapro has a few things that I don't like that much. Like it does dampen my sex drive and it makes me bounce my leg. And I kind of have almost a too relaxed attitude. Like I'm like, I could do yoga or I could sit here and relax. <laughs> and that was a big yeah. deal for me because I was so high strung and so anxious and dysregulated when I got on it, it was such a relief. But it's been about a year and a half. And I was like, I think I'm ready. And so I, when I went to go see the Barbie movie, I had been maybe two or three days completely off. And I weaned real slow, a quarter pill less every week until I was off. Now, the week when I was on a quarter pill was one of the most amazing weeks ever. I was happy. I was singing in the car. I was like high five in trees. Like I was just living it. And I was like, oh, it's because I'm on vacation and I'm getting off of Lexapro and I'm getting more normal and this is going to go great. But I'm telling you, as soon as I was fully off, one, I had mild vertigo 24-7. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's real disorienting, literally. Yes. My mom had vertigo for a year and uh, it was an inner ear problem. It's incredibly disorienting, but I have heard that when you go off of certain medications that it can stir it up, that's awful. Yeah. It was like, it felt like I had gotten off the teacup ride about three minutes ago, you know, where it's like, I'm not falling over and I'm not going to throw up, but I'm not right. You know? So I had that going on for many days. And then I cried in the Barbie movie multiple times. And we'll talk about that later, but I, it kind of set me off. And then Sarah, I lost my parking ticket. Okay. And normally this sounds like, okay, no big deal. But I validated the ticket and then had it in my hand and somehow it disappeared by the time I got it to my car. (gasps) And this Uh is an LA downtown parking structure where if you lose your ticket, you pay $44. Anyway, I, I, it took me an hour to get out of this parking structure. I went through mall hell. Oh, also I had painted my eyes really pink, like way off of my <laughs> eyes, really pink because I, everybody's like, look, we're pink to Barbie and I don't have pink. So I just like yeah. beat my face with the biggest brush I have, which is pink all over my cheeks and eyes. So I started freaking out and crying because I couldn't find the ticket Aww. and just beating myself up, ripping apart my car, <gasps> dumping out my bag, walking back and forth, trying to fight it. I have, a, when I cry, I get real pink in the eyes, real, real red. And plus I had the pink and I looked so, oh, like I just really, I, I put, I did a number on some people at that mall. Because I, I started, once I couldn't find it, I was like going through the mall trying to get another ticket and try to get out of the $44. And I'm like sobbing to people. I get home 
my plan was to like go to the Barbie movie, edit the podcast and hang out with some friends. I couldn't do anything else, Sarah. I could not function. I was emotionally wrecked. Anyway, this is all goes to say, then I met with my nurse practitioner and she was like, you know, I was crying. I was like, I'm going crazy. And I'm not a normal person and I never will be and blah, blah, blah. And Aww. she was like, I love her so much. She was like, Robin, you're not going crazy. This is withdrawal symptoms and we can push through it. Or you can, you can go back on your really low dose because you seemed pretty happy. <sighs> and I was like, maybe I'll try that. Bless her. I took a quarter pill after getting off of that call. Within an hour, my vertigo was gone and I was skipping around the house. And what's my fuck yeah at the end of all this is basically, I think I was on too high of a dose of Lexapro. I think on no Lexapro, I'm not ready. But this micro dose of Lexapro. <laughs> You're micro dosing your meds. And I am happy. Like, I know what it's like to wake up now in the morning and be like, all right, what are we going to do? What am I doing? Ooh, I'm going to get some coffee and I'm going to get like that cinnamon powdered donut and I'm going to, you know, take a little shower and play some music. And I'm, this is not me. Normally when I wake up, I'm like, fuck. All right. All right. Here we go. What are, all right. Get, all right. Get out of the bed. Get out of the bed. No, we'll lay here a little bit longer. All right. Fuck. What do we have to do today? All right. And that's how I'm talking to myself throughout the day, trying to just like motivate. I think it's just one of those things of like this journey that we're on of life. Part of it is about just finding the things that work for you where you can experience joy. Yeah. For some people, that's like transcendental meditation. Yeah. For like for you it is a quarter pill of <laughs> yeah. Lexapro. Like, yeah. I'm so happy that you went through this process at a time where you felt like you had capacity for it. Right. And that you gave yourself permission to go like, okay, my goal was to potentially get off mm -hmm. of the meds and that didn't work for me. And so I'm going to pivot. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. Babe. Thank you. I'm really trying to be heart led and pleasure focused pleasure aware. Yeah. And it's really, thank you, everyone who listens and Sarah for providing this space, I think has been hugely beneficial, this podcast to my mental health. So yeah. thank you, everyone. And fuck yeah to the right meds and personal growth. I'm feeling it right now. I feel like a helium balloon. Your Leo self just needed a platform to you know, really communicate all of your glory. That's right. One thing I wanted to call out, I just was thinking as you were talking, just like at how happy I am for you that you have such a good provider. And mm -hmm. I know that that isn't the experience for some people, you know, yeah. not everybody has access That's to true. like really affirming health practitioners. I love her so much. I feel like she cares about my well-being and is really trying to help me with her incredible knowledge of medication. Yeah. 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 That's great. I'm really, really happy you have like that. I feel well, well taken care of. And that is rare. It's super rare. Thank you for reminding me of that because I, I think I haven't valued it from that perspective. Like she's been incredibly helpful to me. Okay, so I feel like we have to talk about Barbie yes. because it has infiltrated our lives in this way. And next week, we have Susan Bratton, a real-life Barbie, on the podcast. So, And we yeah. said, you know, this season is owed to pink. That's right, yeah. So we cannot not talk about it. I will say, so... This entire conversation and like Barbie herself is very multi-layered. Like there's a lot of layers to this culturally and and personally. Like yes. in a way, I want to almost start this conversation with what your relationship as a kid was to Barbie. Gosh, my relationship with Barbie up to this point is quite fraught. 
that. Right. Because my mom was my primary caregiver, you know, really Mm -hmm. like single mom vibes. And she did a lot around some alternative parenting. But when it came to things like Disney, Barbie, like she wasn't really able to keep those things out of the house. Like my grandmother, my Nana, like really push that shit hard. Like I got every Disney movie for Christmas every year. My grandmother gave it to me. So I don't even know really if my mom was like trying to not have Barbies in my life, but they were there. Right. There's this thing that I think Mattel does around their marketing where they're like, look, girls can be anything. We have gymnast Barbie and we have astronaut Barbie and they've got different outfits. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, that wasn't what I was fucking thinking when I was playing with my Barbies. I wasn't Mm -hmm. like, oh, I could be anything in the world. I was like, this bitch is skinny. Right. And every other piece of messaging that is around me is also promoting this European beauty yep. standard and thinness. Actually, yep. what was promoted as thinness is true emaciation yes. and starvation. The Barbie doll is emaciated. Yes. Yes. You know, I've gotten to a place now in my life where I'm like, if I can get clothes that I feel good in, Mm -hmm. then I feel pretty okay about my body. Like I'm still kind of on that journey of like, oh, I want to really feel good in naked and in my own skin. And I don't get there always, but I can usually get there around clothes. And the thing with Barbie and like all of the fashions and my mom is a costume designer also. So we had a lot of costumery in the house. And like, that was an amazing experience for me as a kid. Like she would hand make me costumes and I got to like dress up. And that gave me a little bit of that, like imaginary play that you get to have with a doll like Barbie. Did she ever make costumes for your Barbies? She absolutely made me clothes for my dolls. I can't remember if we made Barbie clothes because they're just so tiny, but my Hedy Delora doll that I would help when I got into third grade, (laughs) she definitely made outfits for my cat. That bitch was outfitted. That was your main squeeze. So yes, yes. So my mom put a lot of care into having really cool clothes around me and my love of clothes absolutely stems from my mom. But I think my main takeaway or my main learning from Barbie is like, she looks good in everything. And -hmm. guess what? It's because she's so damn skinny. And I was not as a kid. So like I could source some of my long battle with confidence and feeling empowered to things like having Barbies, you know, and then that was also really valued in my family of origin. The women in my family talked about losing weight and that I should lose weight Mm -hmm. and that they didn't love themselves because of their weight. Mm -hmm. Uh, My aunt was probably the only one who didn't talk to me that way. She was also a pretty hardcore feminist. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, my relationship with Barbie is pretty fraught and I didn't want Ruby to have any Barbies. Yeah. What do you think if she asked you for one? Ruby has some Barbies because they've made their way into the house through gifts. And, you know, it's interesting because she got really into gymnastics and someone gave her a gymnastics Barbie. I feel like Ruby played with that Barbie in the same way that Ruby plays with a lot of toys where it's like, all in for a period of time and then it kind of fades into the background. And so for a while, Ruby was playing with that gymnastics Barbie a ton and making it do really cool shit because it's bendy and can do like these moves on the beam. And I was like, okay, I feel okay about this because it actually does feel like it's about these things that Ruby's practicing in gymnastics. And we, you know, kind of supplemented it with a lot of talk about like how strong her body is and like what her body can do. And so I just tried to give messaging around the Barbie of like, that is so cool. And granted, I do appreciate that this gift was also a black gymnast Barbie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Ruby was really into Simone Biles at the time. Mm -hmm. And we got to talk about the Barbie as she was playing with it in a way of like, this is what 
gymnasts can do and like they work so hard to get their bodies to be able to do these things. And so I feel like we kind of mitigated it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then eventually Ruby lost interest in it. I was like, great, we can get rid of the Barbie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. For me, when I was a kid, I had Barbies. I had one of the houses. I don't know which one. And I was really into the house. Ooh, cool. I was less into the Barbies themselves, although there is one outfit that one of my Barbies had that I think is my cat suit root. Oh, because one it. of my Barbies had this kind of neon blue sleeveless cat suit. It's like a unitard with yeah. no sleeves. And I was obsessed with putting that on all the different Barbies. I didn't like her in any other outfit. I just loved the blue cat suit. Other than that, I didn't care that much about the Barbies. I wouldn't do pretend with them. I would set up the house and then I would not know what to do. And so then I would like rearrange the house. And that Uh, was my main, uh but I've always had this kind of gender thing about Barbie where I remember not knowing what the feeling was, but in retrospect, feeling resentful that people assumed that I wanted Barbies where I wasn't against Barbie, but I was kind of like my brother had a He-Man set with the whatever the fucking Skeletor's Castle of Doom or something. Uh You know, I love skulls. And skeletons <laughs> so much. And this is probably my root of that. Oh, it was Castle Gray Skull. It was a giant skull yes. castle. Yes. And I think you would enter through the mouth or some shit. And I thought that was the coolest fucking thing. We were also into like Voltron. And I just had a lot of, I was in it with the 80s cartoons, but I loved the boys' cartoons. I also liked Jim and the Holograms yes. because I loved the enemies of them were the misfits and these punk rock women that hated Jim. I feel like I just had diverse tastes. I view myself as a non-gendered person that can dress up in either gender as a drag kind of thing. And I felt that way as a kid around Barbie. And I didn't like that people assumed I would like Barbie. And that kind of kept me at a distance with her. But I think I also definitely received the messages about weight and everything. I mean, I'm, I don't think it's quite technically an eating disorder, but I do have disordered eating because I am trying to please the male gaze. Yeah. Do you think because you you don't have the gender presentation of Barbie, Mm -hmm. but you have the body, right? um, you know, as close to like how the human body can get to a Barbie body. I achieved that, I think, through being taught how to starve myself as a child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My mom showed me how to do it. She had that Barbie body also. I mean, she was six foot and weighed like 130. For most of her life, like by the time you met her, she was like past menopause and had cancer. And she was like, I could give two shits. But I remember her telling me that your legs should not touch at your thighs. The three points where your legs should touch. She told me this as a kid. It's fucked up. But yeah, your crotch, your Uh knees, and then at your ankles. And those (sighs) are the perfect legs. If your calves touch or your thighs touch, then you don't have perfect legs. (sighs) Oh, wow. Barbie's thighs do not touch. And I'll tell you, Sarah, part of my growth on my body just in the past couple weeks as I've been trying to eat for pleasure and because I'm hungry, those are the reasons that I'm trying to eat now. Doing just that, now my thighs are touching and I notice it and I have to stop that thought of my mom. You have negative thoughts about it. I think I'm noticing it in my subconscious where it's almost like pre-language in a way. I'm not saying like, ah, you're fat or whatever, but I am noticing it. But the other thing I'm noticing is I'm actually getting a little bit of a butt. And so when I'm walking down the street, I will literally hear RuPaul's voice in my head when I'm going across a (laughs) crosswalk because there's all the cars watching you and I'm wearing my short shorts and my boots and my hairy legs and my butt. And I just feel like I'm just like, work it, girl. Because I feel more bodacious, even though I don't think people would be like, oh, look at the booty on that slight white girl. (laughs) I I don't know. I'm getting off the point. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I keep looking at myself in the mirror and I'm like, wow, I I don't I had such a fucked up. It's body dysphoria. 
I had a fucked up idea about what my body looked like because what I considered fat on me a few years ago is what I consider emaciated now. Mm -hmm. And Barbie's part of that. I think Barbie is the root of... Actually, let me take that back. Barbie is the manifestation of our culture's perception of femininity. Yes. And so then when they're doing this thing of like, Barbie can be anyone, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but you've permanently deformed her feet. You know, she's emaciated. She has no genitals, which fine, that's a doll. Her her organs don't fit inside her body. And by the way, this is the point where if you have not seen the Barbie movie and you don't want spoilers that you should check out and come back later once you've seen it. Okay. And this is the context that both of us are going into this movie with. Mm -hmm. This is also the environment where all the promo was happening and I'm kind of mad. Mm -hmm. And then... I started seeing the, I mean, the preview looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, there's some camp here. Yeah. I'm curious. And then the memes started of all the incels who were so pissed <sighs> about the movie. And I was like, okay, I'm all in. Yes. Like, I'm taking Ruby. Ruby and my mom and I went to go see oh, it. Oh, that's such a great We all go. dressed up. What'd you wear? I have a hot pink kind of like lace, really short dress. Yes. And then Ruby wanted to get into a dress. And the only dress Ruby has anymore is like a yellow lace dress. But we did like a bunch of pink mm-hmm. makeup, mm-hmm. both of us. And then my mom had this like lovely kind of flowy pink kimono. Oh. So nice. This was also something I loved was seeing all the social media of mm-hmm. groups of friends going together and femming it up. Yes. And like that does feel like a cool cultural moment to me where we all get to embrace some feminists. Yes. And go engage in this silly summer blockbuster. Yes. You could tell who was going to go see the Barbie movie immediately. I saw it like two or three weeks after it came out. And I saw a lot of straight men coming in wearing some pink also. And so that part, it's nice. It's cute. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I stepped out of the movie, like I'm going to just first give my like initial sort of knee jerk impression. Mm -hmm. And then I want to tear it apart a little bit. Yes, yes. So my top level takeaway was the production design mm. is like you could not give a higher score in my mind. No. To the it is a visual feast. Yes. I was absolutely enamored by the visuals. Yes. Everyone in this film who contributed really in any way is at the top of their fucking game. The performances are phenomenal. Excellent. Uh, They did a lot and kept it on track, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is really hard to do. So the script is pretty good and it has an indie film sensibility Mm -hmm. in a blockbuster package, which is also really hard to do. Yes. And it's a movie that has a social critique in it. And I sat there with my Mm eight-year-old who was also never bored because the visuals and the music Mm. is so fantastic. Yeah. I, I had a great movie experience. I cried during the scene when they first show what Barbie's environment is like. And I think it it's because I felt a little bit maybe what the people who really loved Barbie as a kid felt because I did uh-huh. really love her house and her things. Uh-huh. And so when that was brought life size and the colors, I, I am a lover of color just by itself. I don't need much more than color to just feel emotion and satisfaction. And so the incredible, I like what you're saying as it's a visual feast. It's kind of beyond a feast. It's like taking visual MDMA, you know, where I was like, <laughs> oh, like blown away by it. I think it's worth it to see it in the movie theater because of the visuals and that they brought certain things to life, like these transparent plastics, the texture of the buildings and everything. It made me cry. I mean, granted, 
I was off my meds, but I was like, whoa, like, I was slightly much. chemically imbalanced at the moment, but really those tears were legitimate. Yes. And the <laughs> other part that I cried, do you want to guess? Did I already tell you? I think you might have told me. I think it's a Ken moment. Yes. I cried during Ken's last dance number, The Man Behind the Tan. And it was because I found it so pleasurable. I was mm. deeply pleasured by that. And the dance number and everything, it, it's kind of, I just enjoyed it so much. <laughs> no, you're not talking about the ballet. I'm talking about where it's not all the Kens performing because I have a observation about that. Oh, I'm interested to know. I think it's it's the one that ends up where they're in a non, like just a, a space that's pink on one yes, side. Yes, yes, the ballet, the ombre, like warehouse. Yeah. You know what? I need to rewatch it already because I'm like a little lost in the emotion of it. But that part where I was like, it's a trans flag. They're dancing on a trans flag. And I love it so much. <laughs> okay. Yes. This moment for me also, first of all, Ken looks just like Castles. Yes. Our friend who is a very well-known, incredibly accomplished trans artist. And actually, I feel like we have to fucking get Castles on the podcast. Oh, 100%. And I want to talk to them about yeah. this dance number because I drew the connection between Castles and Ken pretty quickly mm -hmm. as now that Castles is like platinum blonde. Mm -hmm. And then the fight scene devolved into this ballet. Yes. And it is kind of classic musical, but it also felt a bit like performance art to me. Yes. And I was like, I want Castle's version yes. of the Ken ballet. Oh, like wow. I want the queer interpretation yeah. of this because it's like, it's what I love so much about Magic Mike yes. too. Like all of the um, hyper masculine mm -hmm. dancers, but who are in service, like they're basically service submissives mm -hmm. to like their female clients. Like there's something that Magic Mike, especially the second one, like does to my. The most recent one was pretty good. Oh, too. I, I can watch all these. I've not actually seen <laughs> yeah. Magic Mike. The first one's a little dark, but it's like the dance numbers are so great, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I want to stay in this moment, and I want this piece to then transform into like a trans masculine, yes. you know, uh, orgy or something because. It was so great. I love it when masculinity is objectified or when the intensity of the male gaze is kind of converted and then put back onto them. I felt like Ryan Gosling. I've never been a fan of his. I've never been. I've always been like, what's the big deal about this guy? But he was moi, perfect, I thought, for this. And and he did such a good job. And actually, in a lot of interviews, he's been really self-aware, I think, of what his role was in that movie and never seems to break character or have any ego. I mean, I've only seen a couple things and I hate to, I'm sure he's awful in many ways, like all celebrities <laughs> turn out to be eventually. So I don't want to. But I've just been eating the kin stuff up. I think masculinity can be so delicious, but it's so, you know, often toxic and bitter and weird. And, and this was just, I enjoyed it. Oh gosh. Okay. So this is such a perfect segue because this is going to take me into my critique. Okay. Them wrote an article about Barbie like the day after it came out. Uh -huh. um, I really like them as a, it's an online magazine queer and they did not do a heavy critique okay. of Barbie, which surprised me a little bit. You know, the like last line of the article is something along the lines of like, this is not a queer film, but the camp is enough for us. So they said the movie is often deliriously funny, mm -hmm. thanks in no small part to the full-bodied comedic timing of Gosling's mm -hmm. Ken. Mm -hmm. 
And the author of this is Abby Montail. Here's my critique of this movie. And I would not care about this if Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie were not out on the promotion train Mm -hmm. saying that this is a feminist film. Okay. The feminist message really falls apart for me. And part of it stems from Ken's storyline really being more compelling Mm. in a lot of ways. Mm. His arc, it's also a little simpler, his arc, than Barbie's. Mm -hmm. Like, Barbie's is much more nuanced. You know, she sort of goes from, at the start of the film, stereotypical Barbie being like, I have all the benefits of, like, you know, white feminism. Like, life is great. And then by the end, she's wanting a much more, like, complex human experience. Right. So, like, I get that her arc isn't as exciting, but also, like, that maybe is a little bit of a problem, that Ken's arc is so compelling, and then the performance is just so excellent that it's just like I kept being really drawn to Ken in the film and so then when like he is essentially like a colonialist Mm -hmm. and takes over Barbie land and brings all of the elements of toxic masculinity you're still kind of on his side a little bit Mm -hmm. like you're mad at him but you're like oh poor Ken and it's like I wanted to feel more that way about the Barbies. I have a thought about that. I think Ken, one instance, he is the main male character. And in another instance, he is a stand-in for the way women are viewed in our actual patriarchal society. Absolutely. Say more about that. Break that down. So I don't know that we can actually view Ken only as a male character because Ken in Barbie's world is behaving in the way that women are expected to behave in our world. He only exists when Barbie's looking at him. That is a very real experience for a lot of people raised as women in our society. So I think that his arc also could be viewed as a metaphor for women's arc. I'm in this space where I'm not getting noticed. I only matter in relationship to the other gender. To shape your whole identity and existence around the male gaze is a position that a lot of us are in. If you find yourself in more sort of heteronormative patriarchal systems, which we're all part of, but particularly like an interpersonal existence and spheres, absolutely. Like I totally see that. But I think that this is where the feminism for me is really surface Mm -hmm. because it's not intersectional because everything in the film Mm -hmm. is reliant on the gender binary. Right. And nothing else. It is though rape yeah. doesn't exist. It's as though size uh, prejudice doesn't exist. Like at the same time that I appreciate the inclusivity, they also did not address the inclusivity. So I love that there's a trans Barbie. I love that there's so many people of color. I love that there's people of different size, but there's no Barbies of that size. Do you know what I mean? No. Ex- yeah, exactly. But so like when we're talking about representation, I actually got curious because Simu was so great as Ken, but I was like, are there Asian Kens? Does Mattel make those? So I looked it up and all I could find was that now they are making one. There was also Samurai Ken uh, I think in the 90s or something. So it was very like, uh-huh. you know, stereotyped and put into this like box of Asianness. You know what I mean? Fetishized. It's not like, you know, hot Asian American guy that you would be dating. You know what I mean? Okay, so then this is that larger piece that makes me a little frustrated with the feminism of this movie is that so the context outside Mm -hmm. of the film that actually controls everything that's gone into this film is the presence of Mm -hmm. Mattel the huge corporation for whom this movie is ultimately a big profit driving product. And I, I say this with a touch of empathy to the filmmakers and how hard this balance is Mm -hmm. to strike. And again, if you didn't tell me it was a feminist movie, I'd be like, Oh, that was cute and campy and fun and you know, whatever. But it's like, no, you're actually trying to 
imbue it with feminist principles, which ultimately, when the massive male-run corporation is co-signing on every decision in terms of what is represented in this film, it is cool that the film is influencing them to make an Asian Mm -hmm. Ken. But also, by the way, they make the merch long before the movie Mm -hmm. comes out. You know, all the Marvel stuff is those costume designs, every aspect of those films is developed into Mm -hmm. a product now. And then it turns into what you see on the screen. So they could have made the Asian Ken already by the way. So, you know, they're testing it out to see how people respond. And people are like, Ooh, I love this. And now they've seen that it can be profitable. And so that's kind of where representation in this movie feels like it is very much beholden to the heteronormative, patriarchal, capitalist engine that runs the world because you don't see any of these Barbies of size with disabilities, with a queer identity. So I'm I'm flagging, Mm -hmm. I'm marking Mm -hmm. that one to return to having any sort of different experience in this world based on these points of difference and lived Mm -hmm. experience. And so there's just like a total lack of intersectionality. And I just don't feel like where we're at right now in the feminist movement, that you can shout that in the way that the filmmakers have shouted it and then not really open yourself up to critique. I feel like this movie can be looked through different lenses and I am down to look through a progressive feminist lens. My theory about the movie is that it was made for the women that loved Barbies, that want to be that kind of Barbie aesthetic, like who did not maybe question Barbie's emaciated body. You know, it's like that compulsory heterosexuality. It's like this idea that women are supposed to attract, you know, it's not about what they necessarily want. What I think this movie is doing is that it's a bit of a Trojan horse. So it wants to talk to the women who loved Barbie, who maybe looked up to Barbie to say like, hey, have you heard actually about feminism? This movie, I think, is doing what they do in the movie when they're pulling the Barbies into the van and telling them all this feminist shit and they wake up. I think this is trying to wake up some women who are not in our circles, who are not talking about feminism, trying to wake them up. And so it's not going to be intersectional because I don't know that this level of feminism, if it's digestible to the audience that they're trying to reach. So in a certain way, I I feel like it's trying to just spout some basic bitch feminism onto a huge audience. You're actually making my point, though, which is that Ultimately, this is a film that has been oriented around a corporation's mm-hmm. consumer target. Yes. Yep. So absolutely, they used their big marketing oh, yeah. engine and they did their quantitative and qualitative mm-hmm. analysis to assess who can they gain traction mm-hmm. with to sell more Barbies. And that is why the voice of the millennial Mm -hmm. mom who's having nostalgia around Barbie is the champion of it's so difficult to be a woman. You have to be this and you have to be that. And it's this kind of like basic kind of feminist argument. And then you've got the Gen Z Mm -hmm. kid who like has an actual real critique. But here's here's the interesting thing about the thing that she's shouting Mm -hmm. at Barbie at the lunch Mm -hmm. table. It is so clearly written by a millennial that argument that character is not very fleshed out after that moment like that gen zier she has this huge outburst right and you're like yeah i fucking hate barbie too no in that moment i was like finally they're being more critical of themselves but it is a little poof in the movie 
Yeah, it's a poof. Then they silence that character. We're having a real cultural moment where, you know, folks are really struggling with the critique that Gen Z has about society. And I think that there wasn't as much care given to that kind of Gen Z Mm -hmm. perspective. And all of it was like fleshed out through this kind of like millennial Mm -hmm. mom who's then giving sort of like a basic argument about feminism. And then that's the revolutionary act that wakes up all the Barbies. And so to get back to where I think the crux of it is for me, is that Mattel is ultimately pulling these Mm -hmm. strings. And they made a kick-ass movie. They made a really fun summer blockbuster. But let's not say that this is some awesome feminist piece of work because ultimately it is a marketing Mm -hmm. tool for a corporation. And corporations in our country right now are gaining Mm -hmm. so much power over our daily lives, we are anesthetized by products that give us a quick hit of dopamine. Mm-hmm. But the Barbie movie is a massive dopamine hit. It's yes. massive. I felt it hard, and I and I loved it. I in loved the moment, it. Right? Like I have. No, and fun. I feel like it's gonna it's gonna have its like it's gonna mean a lot to a lot of different people. I would be really interested to hear like a gay man who grew up loving Barbie, like the like the Palm Springs kind of fags that collect Barbies and stuff. Like I'd be interested to hear that kind of perspective about it all. But anyway, I hear what you're saying. Well, okay. Okay. Gay, gay man. Great. Thank you for segueing mm-hmm. into, we have to talk about the queerness yeah, in this movie. And then I swear I will, I will stop <laughs> ripping at all the threads, but you know, Barbie land is like a gender binary that is so rigid. Extreme. Yeah. And then we do have a couple characters and like the casting of Kate McKinnon as Weird Barbie is so perfect because I do, I want to give them some credit that they might be trying to throw a nod to queer representation in there, especially with the casting of Kate McKinnon. Not only is she just a phenomenal comedian, but she's a queer mm-hmm. icon. And then you've got Alan played by Michael Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. That's his name. That was a real missed opportunity for some good gay times. He should have been yeah. gayer. He should have been gay, gay. Yes. I think that they were maybe trying to not have like any romance, like it's like sort of aromantical, the whole film, but there would definitely be some Barbies hooking up in Barbie land. Alan would be getting some serious yes. play. And that part I didn't like. The assumption, first of all, that because they're dolls, being played with by kids that they're not having sexual relationships and that they're not that they're happy all the time. The times that I remember playing with Barbie, they were making out all the time. They were driving. Yeah. For smashing sure. or yeah, yes. you just take the naked ones and <laughs> smack them together. My Barbies had horrible <laughs> lives. They were getting dumped. They were like having fights. They Barbie's got a great arm for slapping. You know, it's like shit was going down. It was like dynasty. So I I feel like a lot of kids, I don't know how Ruby plays, but like my guys have dramatic, traumatic storylines. I think unfortunately, with the absence of a sibling, Ruby is more (laughs) civil with toys than probably, you know, the full breadth of experience that Ruby could be He's just having. such a sweetheart. Um, Her toys have nice lives. But maybe it's because <laughs> she's well-parented. I think that like queer representation, not to beat a dead horse, but like speaks to this kind of corporate overlord that is the elephant in the room in this film is that they like don't really want to go there And there were opportunities to do it really, I think, successfully. And as it stands, the queer-ish, super-ish characters exist to do emotional Mm -hmm. labor for the cis, het, you know, extreme gender binary world. And I mean, obviously, supportive characters in all films are about helping the lead character go through its fool's journey, its hero journey, you know, but the fact that all of the emotional labor of this Mm -hmm. film is on Weird Barbie 
Alan and the woman of mm. color from the real world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're showing the white people the way, per usual. Yeah, so the film really does absolutely nothing to disrupt, like, cis, hetero, white supremacist normativity in a lot yeah. of ways. I, I think it does a little bit to shake up some of the people that are living in that cis, heteronormative, white supremacy kind of world, and that they're unaware of it. I think it, it's trying to shake up a little bit. And that I don't mean from Mattel. I think Greta Gerwig is taking an opportunity with this massive platform to do a little work. And it is a, it to us, I think feels like a very small step, but I think to, you know, somebody living in a small town who's like, maybe not the most progressive, but not a Trump, you know, like they're going to, there's some women that I think might wake up a little bit because of it, because other avenues have not reached them. Like if Barbie mm -hmm. reach you, you might be unreachable. Speaking of the unreachables, the conservative backlash is pretty fun. Ben Shapiro was burning Barbies, you know, and again, it all works in Mattel's favor. It's like, oh, Ben, did you go and buy some Barbies from Mattel so you could publicly light them on fire and get a bunch of like progressive people even more into that movie. I also appreciate that. I mean, this is going to end up being one of the highest grossing films. And of course, this is us like rating things on a capitalist structure, but that a woman directed film is going to be one of the highest grossing films is also in its own right a big deal. I appreciate your optimism around this being a bit of a primer. To your point, this past weekend, Barbie was the first film directed by a woman to gross $1 billion. So it does bode well that more women will have this opportunity and if the recent strikes, the writer's strike, the SAG strike, tell us anything, it's that the studios only speak the language of profits anymore. So hopefully this means that women will have opportunities to continue to tell these kinds of stories. And maybe the next version will see Barbie land awaken to a less compulsive, heteronormative, gender binary world after, you know, its big awakening. Uh, there was another article that I found in them, which was about the conservatives panicking over the Barbie mm -hmm. movie, uh, specifically like the casting of a, a mm -hmm. trans actress um, as one of the Barbies. Like they quote the Christian site movie guide. Oh. Uh, Barbie movie forgets its core audience of families and children mm -hmm. while catering to nostalgic adults and pushing lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender character and we're, stories. You're like, it's not like, enough, actually, bitch, actually. We're quite disappointed in that aspect. It does not. And then in their review, I feel like this is like the, you know, 101 of you do not use like exclamation marks or capital letters in journalism. <laughs> but in the Christian movie guide review, in all oh caps, it says, warning, do not take your daughter to Barbie. <laughs> yep. yep. Be, but I think it speaks to the Trojan horse of it. So for those kind of communities, they don't want their daughters to see it because it does have a message that I can't think of the word like pop them out of their bubble. Deprogram programming. Them. I like that phrase that's becoming more popular. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of deprogramming might be happening. I yeah. hope so. Hopefully maybe in a couple more decades, we'll get a Bratz movie that will be intersectional and <laughs> body pause and all the things that we want. Yeah. I mean, as like a, you know, capitalist endeavor, which the film industry is more and more that way than ever before. 
you know, maybe it does open the door, like cracks the door just a little bit for other filmmakers to come in and kind of evolve Mm -hmm. off of this. And like, I do agree with you that someone like Greta Gerwig getting this platform over, you know, anybody else that Mattel could have brought in. And it is such a huge platform and to even have like the patriarchy discussed at all Mm. in a film of this love like size and following is a feat yeah i mean they say patriarchy like 30 times or something i read that somewhere where i'm sure that number's off but it's just like that's not common for any movie of size a movie of size. Like I like that. I'd like to see more movies uh, of size with representation of people of yes, size, people please. Of size and other things. So yeah, I feel like it's a bit like a politician getting elected that is problematic, but better than most any of your other options when it comes to feminist. <laughs> like if you have to pick from blockbuster yeah. movies, which ones are feminist, it's slim. And I would put this in that category. If I wanted to educate people on feminism, I would not show them this movie. Of course. Yeah. But yeah. So That's I think fair. it's feminist and it's not. It's feminist for its context, but not for us. Yeah, it's lacking the nuance and the intersectionality that we would yeah. like to see. And But I'm so glad we went on this ride. I have to, you know, in the spirit of radical transparency, I was very nervous about talking about this oh, yeah? uh, because I feel like, you know, we are not film theorists mm-hmm. or even really like queer or feminist theorists Mm -hmm. and so I was like oh do we really have anything that's worthwhile to say so I I appreciate the opportunity to flex a little bit of my like lit degree Mm -hmm. and do a little bit of analysis of something that I did actually ultimately really enjoy and because I loved it, I feel the right to <laughs> critique it. So now that we've had the conversation, I'm like, oh, okay. We 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 have the right to have this conversation. Your thoughts and opinions are valid too. And dear <laughs> listeners, your thoughts and opinions are valid. And we would love yes, to hear are. about them. You could write to us or send us an audio note and we can play your opinions on the show. Hit us up on the socials, find us and tell us uh, all the ways that we got it wrong. Critique our critique. (laughs) You know, we'll go down a critique (laughs) hole and it'll be fun. Hopefully we'll use lots of lube and kindness and consent. So send us your opinion. We would love your analysis. Send us your fuck yes. Tell us your first celebrity crushes and maybe we'll make a little TikTok out of it. We want to engage with you. So find us at... Fuck yeah, pod, TikTok, Instagram, mm-hmm. threads. You can email us at fyapod at gmail.com. You can get onto our email list at fuckyapod.com. Listen, subscribe, follow. Fuck yeah. Fuck Yeah Podcast is hosted and produced by Sarah Tom Chesson, hashtag my mom, and Robin Jennings. Theme music is by she, her, sir. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot if you would rate, review, subscribe, or share with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at fyapod at gmail.com or find us online at fuckyapod.com. Thanks for tuning in.